Welcome to the Riverview Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Today we welcome back our Senior Minister, Tim Healy. But before we get into that, please take a second to subscribe to our podcast. Here's today's message from Tim Healy. Hey, it's so good to be together. A warm welcome to all of you. I want to say a big good day from my end as well to all our online listeners joining us from all over the city and various parts of the nation and the world. We're so glad to have you with us today. And to everybody in the room, a big warm welcome. So glad to have you here as well. And if it is your first time with us, or maybe the first time in a long time, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Relax. Make yourself at home. You are more than welcome. You belong here, even if you support Collingwood. We still love you, we still love you, and we forgive you in Jesus' name. All right, okay. Now, um, those of you who have uh, ever spent any time at uh, you know, a, a water-based theme park anywhere in the world, you know those ones with the, uh, the big water slides and the super tubes and the uh, wave pools? You'll know that most of those water theme parks have an attraction or a ride that they call the Lazy River Ride or something of that title. And it's a fairly simple concept. It's basically just a large slow-moving stream of water that winds its way through the park and, and uh, you get this big kind of donut-shaped you know, inflatable tube and you get to pop it in the water and you jump on the tube and you just float around a nice leisurely kind of float around the circuit. That is, unless, of course, you are my family because for my family, everything is a competition. Everything is a race. So for us, the Lazy River Ride is a race to see who can do the fastest lap around the circuit. We jump into it and we paddle like crazy, right? To see who can get all the way around first, much to the dismay of all the other Lazy River Ride users. But you'll know that that ride uh, operates a certain way and, and the water in that ride always moves in one particular direction. And the reason it does is because beneath the surface, there are very powerful jets that are, that are pushing the water in that particular direction. Now you don't get to see them, you don't get to feel them, but you do get carried along by them. And in a lot of ways, our, our world is operating under the same effect, or is experiencing the same phenomenon, because in our world today, there are very powerful cultural and social forces that are at work in the world beneath the surface of our everyday living, and those forces are moving us all in a particular direction. And if we're not aware of them, and if we're not thoughtful about them, and we're not careful about how we relate to them, we can find ourselves, even as followers of Jesus, carried in a particular direction that we don't necessarily want to go. Because how many of you know we don't live in a vacuum? We live in a community, we are part of society, and those powerful cultural and social forces have the potential not only to move our lives in a particular direction, but they can even change or influence what we believe and how we behave and even how we think about things like the Bible and the gospel and faith and God. And so it's really important that we understand them and we understand their effect on us. And so over the course of the next four weeks, we're gonna be doing a deep dive into this new series that we've simply called Isms. And we're gonna be exploring some of the powerful cultural and social forces at work in the world today. Things like materialism, and consumerism, and individualism, and cannibalism, well, maybe not cannibalism, right? But a whole bunch of other isms, okay? And, and we're gonna be asking ourselves the question, so what do we as followers of Jesus do in response to and in relation to these powerful social and cultural forces? How do we relate to them in a way that doesn't ignore them, but at the same time is not intimidated by them? 
How do we live our Monday to Sunday in relation to these forces, recognizing that some of them are advantageous and some of them are disadvantageous to us? And to help uh, us along the way and to have some fun as we do, our wonderful creative and sometimes crazy creative team have come up with a sermon selector wheel. And so what we're gonna do every weekend is we are gonna spin the sermon selector wheel and depending on where the needle lands, that's the subject that we're gonna tackle for that day. So all our speakers have been primed and prepped to preach on every single one of these subjects. And depending on where the needle lands, that's what we're gonna speak about on that particular day, right? So are you ready to find out what it is we're gonna speak about today? Right, it's time to bring up the Sermonator Wheel of Destiny. Are you ready? Three, two, one. What are we talking about today? Oh, oh, alrighty. Fantastic, well thank God it did not stop on nudism because that is not my area of expertise. That is Ryan Gagler's area of expertise. And uh, sexism, I'm not even gonna go there, I will leave that to Tanya Watson to tackle, all right? So, skepticism, all right, well, skepticism. Skepticism is definitely a very powerful philosophical and cultural force that is at work in the world today. And perhaps it's helpful for us to just explain for a moment what we mean by skepticism, because there are various kinds of skepticism. But the skepticism that we're talking about here as a social and cultural and philosophical force can be best defined as an attitude or disposition reflecting doubt in the truth of a particular claim. An attitude or disposition reflecting doubt in the truth of a particular claim. In other words, a skeptical person will ask questions like, how do we know that what you are saying is true? Or how do we know that the source that you are drawing your knowledge from is a reliable source? Or how can we be certain of anything at all in fact, once a famous Chinese philosopher said, if when you are dreaming, or if when you are asleep, you are a man dreaming that you are a butterfly, how do you know when you are awake, you are not a butterfly dreaming that you are a man? <laughs> right. How can we be certain of anything at all? Um, if you shared your faith with a skeptical person, they might respond, by saying to you, well, I find it really hard to believe what you are saying. I find it really hard to accept that what you are saying is true. Um, they might say, um, how do you know that what you believe is true? How do you know that you have the truth? Or what gives you the right to make an absolute claim to truth? You see, generally speaking, skeptical people view any claim to absolute or exclusive truth as at least suspicious. So this pervasive, powerful force of skepticism that is at work in our world today is itself the product of some other far more deeper, far more powerful philosophical forces that have been at work in the world for at least the last 200 years. And they came about as a result of the Enlightenment and the, the modernist project. And I'm talking here about philosophical forces like rationalism and empiricism and naturalism um, you know, rationalism being that philosophical school of thought that says, look, the only thing that is truly reliable and trustworthy is that which can be explained, that which is rational, uh, re reasonable, rational, 
uh, explainable and understandable. In other words, if you can explain it with logic and reason, then you can trust it. Uh, empiricism is that philosophical school of thought that underpins our sciences that says the only thing that is truly trustworthy in this world is that which can be verified or validated through empirical research. So if you can prove it in a lab, then it's true and it's trustworthy. But if you can't, then it isn't. So don't put your trust or your confidence in it. Uh, naturalism is that philosophical school of thought that says, well, look, all that is real in the world is that which we can sense, that which we can discern by tasting, touching, smelling, seeing. Um, if it's material, if it's physical, if it's measurable, then it's real. There's no such thing as a spiritual realm. There's no such thing as a supernatural world. Now, human beings don't have a soul. We're just highly evolved biochemical algorithms. And we've developed over millions and millions of years of evolution through the processes of natural selection and survival of the fittest. But really, beyond this life, there's nothing else. So when you die, you go back into the ground and you just turn into another form of matter. But that's all there is in the world, material reality. And so these philosophical forces over time have given rise to skepticism and skepticism is in some ways a response and in other ways a reaction to these philosophical forces. And if I was to sum up what skepticism says or what skepticism claims, I would do it in four statements. And the four statements are these. Number one, and this is high-end skepticism, no source of knowledge can claim to be absolutely reliable. Every source of knowledge should be treated with suspicion. So whether it's logic or reason, or personal experience, or historical record, or even uh, scientific endeavor, all sources of knowledge should be treated with suspicion. Milder forms of skepticism would say, secondly, that the only source of knowledge that might be reliable is that which is logically consistent and scientifically verifiable. And here we see the influence of, of rationalism and empiricism. Thirdly, skepticism would say that we should suspend our judgment accordingly and avoid making absolute truth claims. So no one should jump to conclusions prematurely and no one certainly should claim to have all the truth. And then fourthly, we should have an open mind and continue the necessary processes of scientific inquiry in the pursuit of understanding reality. So by all means, let's keep learning, let's keep exploring, let's keep investigating and discovering but let's not jump to conclusions, let's not make judgments, and certainly let's not claim to know all the truth. Now, it's probably not necessary to say this because it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> not all skepticism is bad. Skepticism, although it sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap and has a negative connotation attached to it, not all skepticism is bad. In fact, there's a healthy kind and a healthy level of skepticism that's actually necessary to do life well. So if uh, you are employed in the sciences in any field, any scientists here today? Any, anybody employed in the sciences? Yep, quite a few of you. Any, any auditors? Any auditors or accountants, right? If you are employed in any of those fields, you'll know that you cannot do your job effectively unless you apply skepticism. In fact, you would have been trained in the art of professional skepticism because you cannot actually do what you are employed to do without being to some degree skeptical. So in that sense, skepticism is valuable because it raises the value of truth. And skepticism is valuable because it raises the value of the pursuit of truth. So skepticism says we don't wanna believe anything that isn't true. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. 
And it's a particularly good thing in our day and age because you know as well as I do that every single day we are bombarded with an assault of fake news, propaganda, uh, deep fake content, misinformation, and conspiracy theories. Oh my goodness, conspiracy theories, right? It's like when, when coronavirus broke onto the scene a few months ago, it didn't take long before all the conspiracy theorists came out of the closet. And all of a sudden, our social media streams were filled with conspiracy theories about the fact that this pandemic isn't real, there isn't actually a virus, this is an international cover-up, and all the governments of the world are colluding and conspiring to cover up what's really going on, because what's really going on is 5G technology. That's what's killing everybody, 5G, right? And, and hot on the heels of the 5G conspiracy was the Bill Gates is the Antichrist conspiracy, right? because Bill Gates is trying to vaccinate us and poison us and ID tag us, and he's trying to reduce global population. And of course, that, that must mean Bill Gates is the Antichrist, because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates, gates of hell, Bill Gates, clearly he's the Antichrist. I know you can't make this stuff up, right? It's crazy. And so every day we're confronted with this misinformation and propaganda and, and deep fake news and conspiracy theory, and so a healthy level of skepticism is actually necessary to stay sane and to stay safe. And I must admit that is something I love about life in Australia, because I've come to realize that Australians, every single Australian I've met has a built-in BS detector, <laughs> right? BS stands for bad stuff, right? <laughs> every single one has a, has a built-in detector, and, and that's a good thing, because it protects us from deception. So skepticism is not all bad, but, where skepticism is a problem, particularly as it relates to faith and God and following Jesus, is that skepticism has generated a whole set of assumptions, false assumptions that are unhelpful because they are untrue. And these assumptions are keeping thinkers from believing and believers from thinking. And how many of you know God wants both? God wants thinkers to believe and He wants believers to think, but they're not because these false assumptions are at play. And so what false assumptions am I talking about? Well, let me give you a few examples. First of all, false assumption number one is that skeptics are thoughtful and intelligent, but people of faith are not. I can't tell you how prevalent this is and how many times I've encountered it out, out kind of there in the world in conversation with people, this assumption that if you are a skeptic, then you are thoughtful, intelligent, reasonable, rational, and highly educated. And if you're a person of faith, then you are not. Then you are probably gullible and not particularly thoughtful, and probably lowly educated. But sorry, friends, that is simply not true. Just take a look around you. All around you, there are living, breathing examples of people who are highly thoughtful, intelligent, rational, reasonable, well-educated, and they are people of faith. In fact, for many of those people, they are people of faith precisely because they are rational, reasonable, educated, highly intelligent, thoughtful people. So to say that uh, people of faith are not is just simply not true, right? That, that whole idea that, uh, you know, that Marx said that religion is just opiate for the masses. The idea that faith in God is just simply a, a drug to sedate and anesthetize the ignorant masses against the realities of life, just simply not true, right? There are many very intelligent, very thoughtful, very educated people who are people of faith too. False assumption number two, closely related to the first, 
is that faith and reason are mutually exclusive and antithetical. This assumption says, well, you can't have faith and reason. Eventually, you're gonna have to choose one over the other. That they're not compatible, that they can't coexist. But I'm sorry, that's not true either. How many of you know, you do not need to check your brain in at the door when you come to church. You do not need to dial down your intellect. You do not need to um, um, suppress your rational and reasonable faculties in order to embrace faith. Uh, in, in, in fact, it stands to reason. In other words, it is logical that if God exists and He is the author and creator of everything, which we believe He is, then God is also the author and originator of logic and reason. And if God created logic and reason, then He is neither offended by them nor intimidated by them. In fact, if God designed you as a human being to be thoughtful and intelligent and rational and reasonable, then God wants you to use those things in service of His kingdom and in service of His purpose for your life. Now, it would be true to say that because God is the author of logic and reason, He is not bound by logic and reason. He supersedes them. He transcends them. So God is not limited to logic and reason, perhaps in the same way that we might be as human beings, but just because He is above them and beyond them doesn't mean He is against them. He is for them. So you do not need to see your, your logic and your reason as antithetical to your faith. And the only reason why this particular assumption exists is because we have a very unhelpful and very unbiblical definition of faith. And I'll say more about that in a moment, but we struggle with this particular assumption because we've come to understand faith in an incorrect and incomplete way. All right, assumption number three, false assumption number three is that as a person of faith, you can't or shouldn't have doubts. This assumption says that if you have doubts in any way, then your faith is weak or your faith is poor or your faith is not sincere. But again, friends, this is simply not true. And it's not true once again because of the way we have come to define faith. In fact, I would go so far as to say that sincere doubt is of far greater value to God than insincere faith. God would far rather you express your doubts honestly than you express your faith disingenuously. Because as David said in the Psalms, God desires truth in the inward parts. God wants honesty internally. Why? Because He can work with honesty. He can work with sincerity. God won't work with deception, not even self-deception. And so God would rather have us be honest and truthful about our doubts. This idea that as a person of faith, you cannot have doubts or should not have doubts is just simply not true. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful episode uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 20 in the life of Jesus and His disciples. And the Bible says, after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples were gathered in an upper room and they were talking and praying and hanging out and suddenly Jesus appears. And He says, peace. <laughs> and He speaks words of encouragement and, and affirmation and inspiration and He breathes on them and He gives them the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, one of the disciples, a guy by the name of Thomas was not there. I don't know where he was, but he was gone. And so when Thomas comes back, Jesus has now disappeared. Again, they, the rest of the disciples say to him, hey, Tom, we saw the Lord. He was here, He appeared to us. And Thomas says, sorry, unless I see Him for myself, I won't believe. Then the Bible says a week later, back in the upper room again, Jesus appears for a second time. This time, Thomas is in the room. And Jesus says, Thomas, come over here. <laughs> he says, have a look at the holes in my hands. Have a look at the hole in my side. It's me. <laughs> and Thomas says, Lord, it's you, my Lord and my God. 
I believe. And then Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, you've believed because you have seen, but blessed are those who will believe having not seen. And you know what I love about that episode? I love that Jesus does not condemn Thomas for his doubt. I know Thomas gets a bad rap sometimes and we call him doubting Thomas, but Jesus does not condemn Thomas for his doubt. He doesn't shame him for his doubt. He doesn't kick him out of the group. He just simply meets Thomas in his doubt and he gives Thomas a personal experience of himself. He doesn't say, hey, Tom, here's 10 things to believe. He just gives him a personal encounter and experience with himself and that encounter becomes life-changing. So don't ever for a minute assume that your doubts are antithetical to your faith because they are not. You can be a person of faith and still have doubts. So if all of what we are saying here about skepticism is true, and if these false assumptions are at work in our world and in the hearts and minds of people that we love and people that we work with and people that we are trying to reach with the good news of the gospel, you can imagine how difficult it would be for somebody who wrestles with skepticism and who battles with doubt to open their heart to the truth of what we're trying to communicate about who God is and what He has done through the person of Jesus. The truth of the matter is skepticism is a very high hurdle to clear because of these false assumptions and because of the nature of what skepticism is. And this reality was, was brought home to me really powerfully and profoundly a, a number of years ago when I, I received a, a, an email from a lady who is a journalist here in our city. And uh, she's a very high profile journalist. If I, if I told you who she was, if I mentioned her name, you would know who she is. So I won't, just to respect her privacy. But she reached out to me via email and she said, I've been watching you on TV and I've been listening to your messages and I've actually snuck into your church on a couple of occasions. And uh, she said, I'm an atheist. Well, I have been an atheist all my life. I work in an environment that's filled with atheists. And she said, you know, if I, if I even let any of them know that I'm talking to you or coming to your church, my career would be at risk. But she said, I have so many questions can we catch up and talk? I said, sure. So we, we caught up for coffee and I got to know her life story and a bit about her journey. And uh, she asked lots of questions and I asked her lots of questions. And we kept the communication up for a while via email. We had a couple of catch-ups and get-togethers. But I could see her struggling. I could see her struggling to clear that hurdle of skepticism. I, I could see her wrestling with the stronghold of reason. And then one day she said to me, you're not gonna believe what happened. She said, I was out walking in, in a park, like across a, like a footy oval or a sports field in a park. And she said, while I was walking, a piece of paper blew across the, the grass and stopped in front of me. And there wasn't like litter anywhere else on the whole field. It's like the only piece of paper comes blowing across the field, stops in front of her. And she picked it up and opened it up and there was a verse of scripture inside. And it was Jeremiah 29, 11 that said, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to bless you, plans to give you hope and plans to give you a future. She said, what do I do with this? Like, how do I explain this? I said to her, you can't. <laughs> you can't explain it. You can only experience it. And when you experience it, you have got to let your heart tell you what you know is true. Because right now your head is telling you, this has to be a coincidence. Like even if this is like a one in a billion chance, this cannot possibly be a sign from God. This has to be a coincidence. But I said, your heart is telling you something else. And your heart is telling you this is a sign from God. Because you know what? You were made in the image of God. You were made in the likeness of God. And you know what that means? You are more than your mind. You are more than your thoughts. You are more than the biochemical processes in your brain. 
right? You are made in the image of God and there is a part of you that transcends all of that, a part that the Bible just simply calls heart, the essence of who you are. And there's a depth of knowing in the heart that sometimes offends the knowing in the mind. So listen to your heart. Sad to say, over the course of the weeks that followed, she began to withdraw, began to retreat back into her skepticism. Eventually she stopped answering my emails and I'm not entirely sure where she is right now and what's going on in her life. And I came to realize that, you know, for many people, their skepticism is a protection. It's a protection against the possibility that God might be real and all the implication that that has for their lives. You know, it's like, a, it's like a child ignoring his parent. It's like when little three-year-old Johnny is sitting on the iPad, or six-year-old, because we don't put three-year-olds on iPads. All right, six-year-old Johnny is sitting on the iPad, <laughs> and mom's calling him, Johnny, Johnny, listen to me. Johnny, give me your eyes. Look at me. I want to tell you something. And Johnny can hear his mommy, but he's pretending he's not. Right? We kind of get like that with God. And so sometimes people hold on to their skepticism because it protects them from the possibility that God might just be real. And there's no, there's no better way to kind of avoid having to deal with that reality or deal with the issue of your sinfulness or your selfishness or your brokenness than to just simply cast reasonable doubt over the existence of God. Because if you can convince yourself that God doesn't exist, then you don't need to deal with Him. And so skepticism becomes a very powerful shield. And so the big question for us then is this, as followers of Jesus, how ought we to live? How should we relate to people in our world who are wrestling with skepticism, who may be abound by doubt or may be struggling with the stronghold of reason? How do we relate to them in a way that represents Jesus well and that presents the gospel well? And I, I wanna share some things with you that I think are gonna be helpful to all of us, just a few ideas, and you can jot them down and, and think about them more deeply this week. But the first is this, I think we need to make conversation, not conversion, the goal. Make conversation, not conversion, the goal. Hey, I've got good news for you today. I've got liberating news for you today. And you know what it is? You cannot convert anyone. <laughs> so stop trying. Convicting, convincing and converting is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's above your pay grade and it's above my pay grade. We cannot convince, convict, and convert anyone. Only God by the power of His Holy Spirit can do that. And it requires the willingness and the surrender and the receptivity of the individual on the other side of it. Our role is to love them and to serve them and to include them and to share with them the good news of what God has done in and through the person of Jesus. And you know, one of the best ways to do that is to lean into the gift of conversation, to just simply give people your sincere attention. Have an open mind and an open heart. Have a curious mind. Ask people lots of questions. Get to know their story. Get to know a bit about who they are. Allow them into your life and into your story. Because you know what happens when you do that? You make friends. And when you make friends, you begin to share life. And then you know what inevitably happens? Life happens. And, and as, as you know, the Americans like to say, life throws you a curveball. Stuff happens. And, and they inevitably will experience those broken realities of life. They might suffer loss. They might lose a loved one. They may go through a mental health episode. They might experience some kind of grief or loss. And then suddenly all those big questions of life come to the surface. And some of the answers that they had to those questions are suddenly not so convincing. And they find themselves on shaky ground. 
And what that does is it opens up a window of opportunity for you to step into their world and say, hey, I know how you feel. I've also suffered loss. I've also lost a loved one. I know what it is to feel grief and to feel sorrow. And then they'll say, but hold on, you're not falling apart at the seams. And then you say, yes, I'm not. And you know why? Because I belong to this incredible community of believers, this faith community that loves me and supports me and cares for me and prays for me. And you know what? I get so much encouragement and inspiration from the Scriptures. I've been reading the Bible and I sense that God guides me and talks to me and comforts me through the Scriptures. And I have this hope in my heart that beyond this life, there is more that there is a life in relationship with God that waits for us on the other side of this. So I, I know death is a reality, but I'm hopeful about what lies on the other side of it. And all of a sudden they get to see how faith works in your life. Because how many of you know, nobody out there is asking the question, is what you believe true? They are asking the question, does what you believe work? Because as far as they're concerned, if what you believe works, it is true. And if it doesn't work, then it isn't true. So nobody wants to know, do what you believe, is what you believe true? They want to know, does what you believe work? And so, so when you open up your life and you allow people to see faith at work in your life, how it comforts you, guides you, directs you, protects you, they get to see the reality of faith. It's that old, uh, you know, once I was blind, now I see story. You know, once I was an old, miserable, selfish individual and I was grumpy all the time and my kids hated me and my wife didn't want to be around me. But you know what? Then I met Jesus. And now I'm more patient and I'm more kind and I'm more sensitive and my kids love me and my wife wants to be with me. And you know what made the difference? Jesus. Once I was selfish and greedy and I used to make money and I tried to spend it all on myself and accumulate a lot of things. But now I'm all about generosity and charity and philanthropy and I live with an open hand and I live with an open heart. And you know what made the difference? Jesus. Jesus, right? And when all of that flows out of just a natural relationship and a natural conversation, it, it opens up the possibility for deep transformation of the heart, right? So that's the first thing. Just make conversation the goal, not conversion. Stop trying to intellectually arm wrestle everyone into submission to your point of view, because it's not necessary, right? Just lean into the gift of relationship, lean into the gift of conversation, lean into the gift of, of curiosity, and learn to love, serve, and include people. Can I get an amen? Amen. Secondly, I think we can do this really well if we make a commitment to being someone other people can trust. Be someone other people can trust. Why? Well, because people will not trust what you are saying if they cannot trust who you are. People will not trust what you have to say if they cannot trust who you are. Which is why it's so important, as we were talking about last month in our wisdom series, to walk in the wisdom of integrity. To be the kind of person that, that shows consistency and speaks truthfully and allows transparency and acts rightly and takes responsibility. Why? Because when you are a person of integrity, you become a person other people can trust. Um, Toby Mack, who's a contemporary Christian artist and something of a prophetic voice to our generation, said the following. He said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then deny Him with their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. It's true. People tend to believe people they can trust. Right? People tend to believe people they can trust. And I know we like to think that our beliefs are based on evidence, and empirical research, and logic, and reason, and all those wonderful things, but they're not, right? 
Our, our beliefs are based on a whole set of other plausibility structures that we build around our hearts that include things like our own personal subjective experience and include things like the community to which we belong. So yes, some of your beliefs are based on logic and reason and some of your beliefs are based on empirical research and evidence. But the majority of your beliefs are actually based on your personal subjective experience and the community to which you belong or the community in which you were raised. That is even true of skeptics. And it's even true of rationalists. And I can prove it to you. If, if, it's, if a skeptic comes to you and says, I don't believe in the existence of God because there is no proof God exists. I would say I agree with you that there is no proof that God exists, but I do not agree with you that that is the basis for your belief. Because while it is true to say that there is no proof that God exists, there is also no proof that He does not exist. In fact, it is impossible to prove the existence of God or the non-existence of God using science. Trying to prove the existence or the non-existence of God using science is like trying to measure wind speed with a thermometer. It can't be done, right? This is above science's pay grade. Trying to prove the existence or the non-existence of God using science is like trying to open a can of soup with a spoon. Just can't do it, right? So yes, you might believe in the non-existence of God, but you do not believe in the non-existence of God on the basis of evidence or fact because there is no evidence for the non-existence of God. You believe for other reasons. And I'm willing to bet anything, it's personal subjective experience or the community to which you belonged. So either you had a really bad experience with faith or religious people or church or Christians, or maybe you were raised in an atheistic environment or belonged to an atheistic community and that has shaped your belief, right? Because as people, we tend to believe people we trust. And I can point to a thousand and one beliefs that you hold in your heart that you have no personal experience of and no evidence for. But the reason you hold those beliefs in your heart is because you belong to a community of people you trust who happen to believe that too, right? So if you genuinely want people to believe what you believe about Jesus as the hope of the world and the light of the world because you believe that it's the best thing for them to believe too, then start out by being the kind of person other people can trust because they will never believe what you have to say if they do not believe who you are as a person, all right? So be someone other people can trust. And then thirdly, and finally, I think we all need to reframe our understanding of faith. I think this is so important and every single one of us need to think deeply about this. We need to reframe our understanding of faith because over the course of the last 200 years, faith has taken on a very unhelpful and very unbiblical meaning. And it's largely just the result of the Enlightenment and the modernist project and the fact that we live in an information age. And what we have done is we have associated faith with belief. And we've equated belief to intellectual assent with certain propositional truths about God. So this is how the story goes. And you'll recognize this, this will be familiar to you. We tell people, right, if you wanna be saved, you need to have, you gotta have, you gotta have faith. All right, so you're distracting me, Claire. All right, so if you wanna be saved, you gotta have faith. And to have faith is to believe. And to believe is to give intellectual or mental assent to these propositional ideas about God. So you gotta believe that God exists and that He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And you gotta believe that God has revealed Himself most preeminently in the person of His Son, Jesus. 
And you've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he was raised again on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you've got to believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative, infallible Word of God. And there's all these things that you've got to believe. Now, the problem with defining faith as belief and belief as intellectual assent to these propositional truths about God is you'll discover very quickly, if you hang around church long enough, that all the churches have different lists. And there are tens of thousands of different denominations and there are hundreds of thousands of different churches. And all the main streams of Christianity, like the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the Oriental Orthodox tradition and the Roman Catholic tradition and the, and the Western Protestant tradition are all operating out of different Bibles. They don't even all have the same Scriptures, but they're coming up with different lists. And so then church leaders argue and debate about which list is the right list. And they have conferences about whether or not Adam had a belly button and if the fly falls into the holy water, is the fly sanctified or is the water defiled? And everybody in the pews is more confused than a termite in a yo-yo, right? And so then we agonize over, well, what's the right thing to believe? What's the right thing? To, I wanna be right with God. I wanna be saved. So I gotta have faith. I've gotta believe. I've gotta, I've gotta think the right thoughts about God. So what are the right thoughts to accept and believe? And people get anxious about this, man. But here's the thing, if you did a deep dive into the Bible and you did a thorough, proper, exegetical study of the concept of faith in both the Old and the New Testament, and you looked at the historical grammatical context in which the words are used in the original Hebrew and the original Greek, and you consider the full semantic range of all of those words, you would discover that faith in the Bible is better defined as loyalty, as allegiance, as fealty, as surrender and submission and obedience and dependence. If you're looking for great synonyms for the concept of biblical faith, there they are. Faith is better understood as faithfulness, as dependence, as submission and surrender and as loyalty to God. In other words, there's a relational element to faith that is unavoidable. And that means that faith is not by definition certainty in what we believe, Faith is confidence in who we trust. Faith is not certainty in what we believe. It is confidence in who we trust. And that is precisely why it's possible to be a person of faith and still have doubts. Because faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is choosing to trust in the presence of doubt, in the face of doubt, in spite of doubt. Now, am I 110% certain about everything I believe? No. In fact, over my 25 years of following Jesus, I've discovered that some of the things I used to believe about God were either incorrect or incomplete. And so as I've studied the Scriptures more, as I've come to know God more and experience God more, I've discovered, oh, my ideas about God are changing. They're evolving, they're developing as I grow, as I learn, as I discover, as I change as a human being. And so am I 100% certain about everything I believe? No, most things, but not everything. Am I 100% confident in the God I trust? You better believe it. That's why Jesus said, have faith in God. Have faith in God. In other words, God is the object of our faith. He didn't say have faith in your ideas about God or have faith in your doctrinal statement or have faith in, in, your, in your intellect, in your rational capacity. He said, have faith in God. That element of relational trust is fundamental to what faith is. And that is ultimately what we are calling people to. And if you, if you take nothing else away from this conversation tonight, I want you to take this away. This is the big idea that I want you to walk away with in your mind. Our mission as the church is not to tell people what to believe, 
as much as it is to invite them into a community experience that helps them discover who to trust. Right? Our, our job is not to tell people what to believe. It's to invite them into a community experience that helps them discover the reality of who they can trust and in whom they can put their faith. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says the following. I'll give you the Scripture because I know some of you are sitting there saying, where's the Scriptures? Tim always gives us lots of Scriptures. Where are the Scriptures? Here we go. This is the only one you get tonight. Proverbs 3 verse 5. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And what I love about this statement is that the wisdom writer is telling us here so clearly something that we all know instinctively, and that is that we don't just believe with our heads, we believe with our hearts. We don't just trust with our heads, we trust with our hearts. And at some point, you have to accept that your understanding, your reason, your logic, your capacity for investigation, your deductive ability, all of that has a limit. So don't lean on it. Don't depend on it. Don't put your confidence there. Put your trust in the Lord. Because at some point, your reason is gonna fall short. Those of you who've been around Riverview for a long time will have heard me share this story about the time my wife decided to throw herself off a bridge. And we were on holiday down in South Africa in the southeastern corner in a beautiful place called Neisner. And not far from where my in-laws live is a bridge called the Blokrans River Bridge. And attached to that bridge is the highest commercial bungee jump in the world. And so my wife has a fear of heights. And she decided that she was gonna challenge her fear of heights by jumping off the side of that bridge with an elastic strapped to her ankles. So I went along to film it and to offer moral support. <laughs> and the funny thing is, you know, from the moment you arrive, they tell you and there's signs everywhere. Hey, we've had 10,000 jumps off this bridge, not one fatality. This bungee cord can carry 300 kilograms or whatever the case may be. And they just reinforce and reaffirm the safety of what it is you're about to do. And you know what? The truth of the matter is you can rationalise and you can reason your way all the way to the edge of the bridge but it is only trust that will take you over the edge. At some point, you have to let go of your reason because all of your reason, all of your rational processes, all of your natural thoughtful instincts are telling you in that moment, don't do this, don't do this, you should not be doing this, this is not normal, this is not natural, right? <laughs> so there comes a point where you need to let go of your reason and you need to step into the realm of trust. And the truth of the matter of friends, no person can reason their way into the Kingdom of God. No person can rationalise their way into the, into the reality of an experiential relationship with God. You can only trust your way into God's presence. And so if you are the kind of person who has wrestled and battled with scepticism and with doubt, can I encourage you to take the step of trust because it's only when you trust God with your life and your future and your decisions and your relationships that you discover, oh, God is there. <laughs> God is real. God is good. God loves me. God has good intention toward me. Take a step of trust and trust Him with your life and you will discover God is good. Amen. Amen. All right, let's bow our heads. We're gonna take a moment to pray together. Father, we thank You so much 
Oh God, for the gift of Your Word, we thank You for the gift of Your Spirit. Thank You for the reality of Your presence in our lives. Father, and I know for so many of us sitting here, the reality of Your existence, the reality of Your love is something that our hearts know all too well. And even though our heads wrestle and battle and struggle sometimes with that reality, I thank You that deep down inside of us, we know You are good, You are God. Father, I just simply wanna pray tonight, firstly, for anyone here who is wrestling and battling and struggling with doubt, with skepticism, with the stronghold of reason. Father, I pray that You would just persuade their hearts tonight in the way that only You can, that You are indeed there, that You love them, that You are a good God, that Your heart is inclined toward them. And I pray, Father, that You would draw them into the place of trust, where they place their lives in Your hands where they learn to walk according to Your will and Your way, where they learn to discover who You are. Father, I pray, help us who are followers of Jesus and believers in You, help us to live wisely in this world. Help us, God, to be the kind of people other people can trust. Help us to be great conversationalists, to be relationally curious and generous. Help us, God, to embrace a faith that trusts You above all else so that through our lives, You might be honoured, glorified and seen. And we ask it in Your precious, wonderful Name. And everyone who agreed said, Amen, Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thanks again for joining us today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at riverviewchurch.com. And if you want any information about Riverview Church, you can find that at riverviewchurch.com. 